Welcome to Surge's Faith, Work, and Rest podcast. Our goal is to help God's people discern their vocations, reimagine their occupations for the good of their neighbors and the glory of God. Hi, welcome to another episode of the Faith, Work, and Rest podcast. I am AC. I'm sitting here with Jim Mullins. And today we're going to be listening to a conversation that Jim had with Jesse Gore. Uh, She is a special education teacher here in the Valley. One of the things that she's going to talk about that you're going to hear is the way that the pain that she experienced in the past, specifically her experience in the educational system, you know, she didn't graduate high school, how that equipped her to be uh, an even better teacher now. Before we dive into that conversation, Jim, I'm curious, how has pain from your past prepared you for faithfulness to your calling in the present? Well, it's interesting. For many years, I was convinced that I was not going to be able to find work. Um, I struggled mightily in school. I have ADD off the charts. I mean, that's literally right now there's 27 things going on in my head. And I failed every single class in junior high and in high school And the only way I was able to hang on just a little bit is because football coaches, basically, they kind of fudged the numbers a little bit to help me around. I ended up dropping out of school early, and I basically felt like I was a dud. I would work these minimum wage jobs, and I could not see how these were good jobs with good work. I got fired quite a bit in my first handful of jobs. And when I became a believer, one of the unexpected things was that the biblical story and this vision of Jesus started invigorating my view of the world. And I started to gain this hunger for learning. I even began to pick up old textbooks and read them and try to fill in some of the gaps. But I've never forgotten that real sense of worthlessness and struggle while I worked the jobs uh, that I worked and got fired from different jobs and those sorts of things. And the need that I had to reimagine every single task that I do in light of the biblical story. So I could see no meaning in making hot dogs and working as a custodian, as doing landscape or fixing various tools that were used for backyard construction. These were the kind of jobs that I had. And uh, right now, I do think that I can relate to people who struggle, who don't necessarily have um, a lot of credentials, and who are doing work that they can't see the meaning in. And I think that fuels me to do what I do within the Faith, Work, and Rest initiative and my work as a pastor to really help people see the glory of God pulsating through every task that we get to do during the day. That's really good. About two years ago now, I was in uh, in a car accident. I was rear-ended. I sustained multiple injuries. Even to this day, I'm still wrestling every day with pain. And so it's obviously left a huge mark on my life and limited things that I can do. And it's something that's always, at least in the back of my mind, if not the forefront of my mind, Interestingly enough, one of my part-time jobs now is driving for Lyft. Having been on the receiving end of poor driving, it makes me 
put safety at paramount importance when I drive. And when I think of how can I love my neighbor through the way that I drive, one of the ways that I think through it is when I'm driving, how can I be predictable? Because one of the things about driving is that not only are you having to make safe decisions, but a lot of the decisions you make on the road are based on what you think other people are going to do. And so if I'm driving in an unpredictable manner, I am making everyone else's job harder on the road. So as a Lyft driver, for my job to get someone from one place to another safely and also so to love my passenger, but also to love my neighbors on the road, if I can drive in such a way where it is clear what I intend to do, then it makes everyone's job easier. And I'm loving my neighbor through the way I drive. And also even things like being honest with myself on how do I feel right now? You know, am I tired? You know, I remember studying for my driver's license both here and in another state. And I remember the books talk about not driving when you're tired or angry or things like that. And I remember as a young teenager just totally throwing that out the window. Like, what does that have to do with anything? I can push through that and I can focus. But now realizing that that impacts the way that I drive. And so being honest and checking the thermometer and saying, okay, you know what? I'm tired right now. I probably could push through and make a little bit of extra money. Or I can love my neighbors on the road and not take that unnecessary risk and just stay off the road right now. That's incredible, man. That's probably the most intentional, thoughtful Lyft driver out on the road. And I think it's a beautiful picture to see like the pain that's always with you as the reminder of what you're stewarding as you are driving that car and the value of the lives that are in the car and what the consequences could be if you don't drive well for them. I think that's beautiful, man. And I think uh, that's what we're going to hear a lot of today with this interview with Jesse. I was really moved when we first did this interview to hear the ways in which she pressed into the struggles of life and how God used that to shape her into the teacher that she is today. So let's listen to that interview and to the work that God is doing through the life of Jesse, a special ed teacher. First of all, why don't you start off by telling us what you do? Um, I'm a special ed teacher um, at an all special ed school, level D. So our students are sent to us from different charter schools and different districts. Um, referred to this school because of their physical or verbal aggression or loping or just different things that we're not able to be dealt with in those other settings. What What's like a hard day like and what's a, a good day? Sometimes you know like right away. Like the kid comes off the bus, they're already kicking people, they're yelling, you know, they're, you know, they're not going to make it to the classroom even right away. They need to go take a break in one of our special break rooms. Like you can tell. And you're like, all right, somebody's got to go talk with them, got to process with them, and let's see if we can get them back into the classroom. So like from right off the bat, you can tell if it's going to be a good or bad day, um, along with how quickly certain students will like follow directions. You know, if you say, hey, welcome to class. All right, let's go take a seat. And they're like, no. And then it goes from no to yelling to inappropriate words to everything else. And luckily, when it does happen that early, there's a lot of time left in the day. So you can go in and you can say, hey, friend, how's it going? You know, and try to process. Um, because there is a lot of barrier language-wise, um, showing pictures to try to identify how they're feeling. 
sad faces, happy faces, angry faces, showing food. Maybe they didn't get lunch or breakfast in the morning. Um, maybe they're hungry. Maybe somebody said something. How did the bus ride go? Trying to figure out all these other details um, because it's not like they're sitting in there going like, hey, Miss Jessie, um, this kid called me a mean name and I, I feel upset about this, let's talk. You know, it's very occasional words or sounds that we have to then decipher, communicate with, um, and then walk through. Well, we want to be in the green. We want to feel a little happier or safer. Um, so what do we need to do to get to that? Um, a lot of it is squeezes sometimes. Some of the students just want to be tight and either in a tight hug or some sort of special mat where they're going to just take a break, get some tight squeezes, um, and then their bodies can kind of calm down and then they're more willing to walk to the classroom, process the rules, and begin following directions. Other times they just need time alone and sometimes they can verbalize that um, just they need a break and they're either being aggressive and pushing you away um, or they're asking to be outside and just away from other students. So from the get-go you know if it's gonna be like a bad day like but it doesn't mean the whole day is bad and I think what I've learned is that it's it's very fragmented of like that was a bad part but I don't hold on to that towards the student and they don't usually hold on to that if we can process appropriately. And then we move into the next thing and it's like, all right, this part can be good. You know, let's go over the calendar and what's going on with the schedule. And you know, that part is good. And then we move on to the next thing and it, it might be bad again, but we can always like come back to that. All right, let's start following directions again, using quiet voices and appropriate words. And so it's very much goes from one thing to the next thing. There is no, the whole day was bad or the whole day was great. Um, it's very contingent on a lot of different aspects. So tell me about the kids who end up in your classroom. Uh, what are they struggling with? How old are they? Just give us a, a picture of the kids that end up in front of you that you get to serve. So my classroom has six students. Um, one is female, the rest are all males. Um, there's diversity in race and age and what they've been um, labeled with and all these different kinds of things. I work with the older students, so it's 15 to 22, um, which is kind of the end of special education in Arizona is 22. Um, so they are all older, but cognitively there's a similarity that they are lower cognitively. Um, so they function in a two to three or four year old range. Um, so we have to take that into effect of when you're walking through different steps that our pace needs to be slower. We need to repeat things a lot. We need to have like a ridiculous amount of patience to get through the day um, and be willing to give up our own pace for that. Most of my students have the label of autism, and so that does come with a couple of different things, but um, some of them are nonverbal, and so they have different talkers, so some of them have iPads or just pictures. I do have two students that use only pictures, and it's pictures that I've created that help them access their environment in the classroom, and so it's, you know, the snack option, the, the work option, not as exciting as a snack option. And so that's kind of the communication that goes on to verbal students. And so they are able to use more of speech to discuss things with us, to ask questions, to access their classroom, but everything still has a picture that goes with it to clarify. Um, I do have a student that is able to use more of the letters. So if they're saying something that begins with a V, but they keep saying the B sound, it's very easy to show them which one are you doing and they're able to kind of 
judge off of that. So even within my classroom, which is lower functioning, I mean, the ability level is still like a huge difference between that and someone who is trying to access their talker to communicate with you um, and then has, you know, a physical disability as well. So the classroom is multiple disabilities or MD. Um, and so each of the kids has different uh, label that they come under special education with. And that really only applies to what kind of the financial side of what they're getting for education and whatnot. Um, it's not something like we bring up in the classroom or discuss and who they are. So that's kind of what the classroom looks like. So one of the things we really emphasize is the importance of reimagining our work in light of the biblical story. There are so many other stories that give meaning to work or that we use as the framework to understand the significance of what we do. And it would seem like many of those stories, it doesn't make sense for you to do what you do in light of those. For instance, the financial story, <laughs> making money. We know that teachers don't make a ton of money, those sorts of things. So it's really important for, for you and I think for everyone to reimagine our work in light of the biblical story. One of the ways that we do that is by seeing how our work reflects some aspect of God. We're created in his image, and therefore when we work, we are displaying what God is like. Can you tell us a little bit about what aspects of God's character you are putting on display, or you're trying to put on display in your work? Uh, trying my best, but uh, every morning I wake up and I'm exhausted, and I say, I can't do this. So here we go together. Um, but I think the main thing that because I've asked for God to break my heart for what breaks his, he um, has opened up this classroom as a very clear, clear group of people he wanted me to see and to work with. Um, and I think it's important that we know that God sees us and he sees every part of our life and he experiences that and that he sees these students as well, even though our society doesn't see them. From the movies that we portray to um, just walking down the street to anywhere you go, you don't get to experience the students that I get to work with. Uh, or if you do, you're in a movie theater and you hear someone and they're loud and annoying and you get bothered by it. You, why did you know, the group have to come here today while I wanted to see a movie. And I guess he gave me like this beautiful opportunity and said, that's where I need you. These are the kids that I see. And now you get to see them too. And it's been really good and wonderful and joyful and painful. <laughs> but he, yeah, he's someone who sees us and he's someone who sees the other. And he reminds me of that. That's incredibly meaningful for me because my daughter is classified on the autism spectrum and I often see the world overlooking her or looking right through her. And I think it is incredible that God would see my daughter, love my daughter, and part of the ways that he sees her is through eyes like yours. And uh, it, there, it means so much as a father to have people who truly see and appreciate your children. And so I think that absolutely 
reflects God's character. The question I have for you is, how did you end up in this role? I know that it wasn't a straight path for you. So tell us a little bit about the story of how you ended up in this classroom and at the school. When I start to like reflect on this and see just the way God has worked in my life, it it seems very obvious. Like, of course I would work in that classroom. Just from having a diverse background of where I grew up um, and having that feel very normal and comfortable to me growing up in the projects and just not knowing anything different, thinking this is normal, um, to being homeschooled and thinking this is normal, it's not, to then going to a school and just having... Just feeling like I'm at this school, I feel like I should be getting help, I have so many teachers, I, you know, I have so many resources, but I'm not, I'm, I'm struggling, and I don't know why, and just not being heard in that type of setting, um, to leaving the school, to dropping out and saying that I'm done, you know, why would I keep trying, I'm exhausted, I, I'm done, um, to being able to travel to different countries. Can I can I pause you for a second? Because I just want to highlight the irony <laughs> that someone drops out of school and then becomes a teacher. Uh, talk to us about that. Don't let school get in the way of your education. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's hilarious because I uh, finished ninth grade. Woo! Um, that's it. <laughs> and then I took a sabbatical year, as one does after ninth grade. Um, <laughs> couldn't tell you what I did that year. I'm pretty sure I talked my parents into saying like, oh, yeah, I'll homeschool myself. I'll totally be self-educated. Yeah. And they're like, sure. Um, I don't think I did, like, at all. Or at least for a month, maybe I did. You know, having no purpose during that time was horrible. It was very confused and it was very sad and not a good um, time. And then when it kind of came to an end, the, the school year was about to start again. My mom was like, well, why don't, why don't you just go to college? My thought is, well, you know, I'm not going to go to college. I don't know what I'm going to study. And she goes, of course, you know what you're going to study. I do. I know what I'm going to study. I'm like, I don't even have my driver's license. Um, and she's like, yeah, you're going to, you're going to be a special ed teacher, aren't you? Oh yeah. I like, I lost my purpose. I am going to be a special ed teacher. And I went straight to college and I took the classes I needed to take and I uh, got my degree. And it didn't matter that I hadn't finished the rest of the schooling that typically occurs. I, I did really well and it only makes sense, like it doesn't make sense because, you know, I had a ninth grade education. But I had that support and that motivation and that focus of like, of course I'm going to be a special ed teacher. What else would I have been made for? I mean, it was so clear and a lot of people just kind of have to tell me things because I'm usually a little oblivious. And so, yeah, it it just took one person going, you lost your focus. So Steve Garber, he's uh, one of my favorite authors. He's also a friend. He has this line. He says that one of the most important questions that we can answer is knowing what we know, what are we going to do? Having experienced the hard things that we've experienced and having an intimate encounter with struggle that shapes our vocation. So I'm just curious how your journey, the struggles that you've had, how you feel like that shaped you and equipped you for the work that you're doing now. Yeah, so I think the diversity just kind of started it, just being comfortable 
very comfortable around people that didn't look like me, didn't speak the language I spoke, um, different age ranges, things like that. Um, and then just opportunities that would come up of traveling to different countries. And I remember um, specifically being in Guatemala, working at an orphanage, and they asked, hey, does anybody want to wake up like an hour and a half extra early um, in the mornings to work with Ana Victoria. She she needs extra help in the morning to get ready for school and you gotta help her get ready. And then you have to walk with her to school and uh, kind of be with her all day because um, she's got a lot of needs. And I was like, of course I do that. I don't know why I said that. I mean, like, I'm not, a, I wasn't equipped. I think I was actually long, younger than she was um, at the time. And, and so I got up extra early in the morning and I went over and I helped her out and we walked to school and she had um, a lot of differences in, in needs and physical needs, verbal um, communication was difficult, but it didn't matter because I didn't speak their language anyway. Um, and so there was a lot of emotional connection that happened um, and we'd walk to school and there was this giant uh, hill with stairs and we got very close then physically um, helping her get there. And that was the first time that other people began speaking in my life saying like, hey, I think you've been gifts, given gifts um, to be able to help people. And I was like, oh, I didn't notice you were noticing this. Um, and so that was a very huge turning point um, along with just difficulty with school myself or being told I couldn't do things. Uh, I have a large family and very talented athletes in my family and pretty much anything that my brothers tried to do they were really good at like right away. And that was not my gift. I am slow and steady. Um, and so being told you can't do things or you're not as good at things um, is obviously difficult to hear. And now I work with a population that people look at them and immediately it's you can't and no and your options are limited, and if, if any options. Um, and so I guess I get to be that person that says, wait a second, what if your environment is changed? Maybe you can, maybe it's us, not you. Um, and thinking through that kind of creativity of um, different jobs that are available, if they just look different for these students, um, these are students that would never, I mean, people look at them, even their own family members look at them and go, of course, they will never work. And I try to challenge that and say, well, what if we just haven't found the right job or the right employer? Um, instead of just saying, no, you can't, because that's, that's hurtful to anybody. So you said you struggled with school, and I've heard you talk about your struggles with reading and those sorts of things. Can you tell me a little bit about that and how that has given you a lens uh, to serve these students? So being homeschooled was fantastic because you, one, you don't know how good you are, but you mainly don't know how bad you are at something because you just, you have no idea. Um, and so when my family and I kind of decided, all right, it's time to go into school and figure out what school to go to, um, we also had the discussion of like what grade to go in. Although I had like a very specific grade, like I had finished seventh grade in um, homeschooling because I had so many difficulties with reading or with spelling, which I still believe creative spelling um, should be allowed for sure. Um, we just kind of sat down and had a discussion of would it be best if I did seventh grade again at this new school. None of the kids would have known that I'm repeating. You know, it wouldn't have, I have a July birthday. It wouldn't have been like super weird, but that was like the first time I thought, wow, I'm, I'm a failure. I'm not smart. 
I, you know, even though the other kids don't know, I know. And, and that really hurt, even though that was the best decision for me, uh, school wise, um, and a great choice. It still was the first time I felt, wow, like I am a failure. Um, and then it just kept going with different things of how long it took me to do work. Even if I got decent grades, you know, I'm the kid that goes home and then spends six hours doing homework and then tries to get some sleep and gets up and does it again and again. Um, and then when it came to reading, I, even at that age and into ninth grade, I would have my mom read the books to me because I had no idea what I was reading. Um, I could read it word-wise, but then somebody would go, and who's this character in this Narnian book? And I'd be like, uh, I have to wait until my mom reads it to me because I have no idea. Uh, I mean, if I read it myself, there was just no comprehension. Um, and nobody, you know, sat down and discussed like, here's how the brain works and maybe yours is just a little different than typical. And so I just kept like going through and thinking, well, I'm just kind of the dumb one that I'll just keep struggling along, you know. I'll cry at home and smile at school and uh, you can't keep that up for too long. So on a very small level, I understand of the frustration. And so that kind of helps me with how the kids react emotionally. Um, I'm a runner and recently hurt my foot, had a cast for like a, or a couple weeks and then, you know, physical therapy. And I was so mad about it. And I was like, wow, if I didn't have appropriate coping skills or a good community, I mean, my anger could look so different. Um, and then I work with these students that they don't have the socially appropriate way to deal with their anger, to try to express like, hey, I'm mad today. Hey, I can't do these things, I need help. Um, so they do lash out in a very dramatic, different way than we would, but it does make sense. There's never this like, what, what happened? It's, you know, man, maybe they were frustrated because they couldn't open their water bottle and they needed help with that. They didn't ask for help, but maybe that's where I come in as the teacher to teach them to ask for help. But I guess I get that on a very different level um, of like, yeah, when I'm mad, I don't do socially appropriate things um, and neither do they. And so I don't, I don't get upset with them. I'm there to teach. So this year you moved into a new classroom and that was a hard decision that you felt like God was calling you to do. What did that process look like? Tell us about the move and what the process looked like. Yeah, so last year I was in a similar age classroom. I worked with older students still, um, just very different functioning wise, a lot of higher functioning students, probably more of the five to nine year old cognitive range and a lot less physical aggression I was dealing with. And so every day when I came to work though, the classroom I'm in now, the MD classroom, I'd pass this MD classroom and I'd, you know, I knew that last year they didn't have a teacher and so I, I knew that was going on in there. And then I knew that this year, oh yeah, they have a teacher. And then about, I believe two months in, then that teacher quit. And so I knew the dynamic of that classroom was just age trying to figure it out. Um, along with just like the administration going in when they could, different teachers trying to see what was going on. Um, but that definitely fizzled out. It's a very exhausting classroom. And so not everybody wanted to be in there very much um, and was very vocal about that. Um, and so I knew there was a need and 
it was very obvious. And so every day when I got to school, I'd pass that classroom. And then I'd go off into my little bubble of my other classroom and kind of do what I needed to do. Um, and about halfway through the year, I just like, every time I passed that classroom, I was like, I, they have a need and, and nobody's filling it. And so I'd go and I'd talk to my directors and I'd say, oh, do you have a teacher yet? No, we don't have a teacher yet. Of course not. Nobody's going to want to teach in there. Okay. All right. You know, just checking in. Um, and just continuously. And it got about halfway through the year and I just asked God all the time like to break my heart for what breaks his because I'm a very stubborn and selfish person. And so I get very, you know, one track. And I would just like pass that classroom and feel so drawn to it. And I'm like, this is crazy, you know? Um, and nobody else understood this. I would try to explain like, think I'm supposed to be in that classroom. And everybody else was like, no, you're not, you know? Nobody wants to be in there. Um, and so I sat down with my directors and I said, if nobody would like to teach in there next year, I think I'm supposed to be teaching in there. And they said, nope, <laughs> we don't want you in there. You're gonna quit. You know, you're gonna quit before you start or you're gonna quit a month in. We don't want you in there. Um, it's not the classroom for you. And I said, I think I'm supposed to be in there, but okay. So my directors were already like against it and everybody else in the school was saying, don't do it. Um, and I just kept like, I just felt pulled to it. And it's funny because like going through school, I thought this was the original type of classroom, like before starting college, like I was like, I think I'm supposed to teach that. But going through school, I'm like, I'm never going to teach in that type of classroom. I'll, I'll teach in a different classroom. You know, I thought never, ever, ever. Um, and of course, you know, God draws you back to his plan when you get derailed on your own plan. Um, and so they let me start teaching in there. Actually, last year, I would teach in the afternoons um, because my classroom, and I was a first year teacher in the school last year, because my classroom was going so well and there was no physical aggression and there was this dynamic that worked incredibly well because it was so stable they allowed me to go and start teaching in this MD classroom um, and I loved it. I mean immediately I was probably like a problem causer because I was like laughing too much with these kids and there's this kid that spits like 24-7 and I thought whatever you know he's gonna spit on me let's have fun with this and so it just was like this is so hard and I am so filled with joy in this classroom. This is insane. This doesn't make any sense. My directors still were like, no, you shouldn't teach in there. You're, you're gonna quit. And I, I mean, it just is because of God. Like there is no other explanation that makes sense, but he loves and cares for me so much. And he sees me that I am allowed to like love these kids so unconditionally and I mean I have like scars on my arms from these kids and I still like get to work early in the morning and greet them every day and give them as many smiles as possible because I know it's it is difficult to work with them but like I have God's love for me that I get to give to other people and and I love doing it but like that pain and joy together will is why it works because it is very difficult. And I try to explain that to people because they like, you seem so happy. Of course I'm so happy, but being bit is no fun. You know, being spit on the face is no fun, but they're humans, image bearers, and I get to love them every day. You know, hearing you talk like that, there's probably few commentaries that could explain the nature of the joy that comes with 
the fellowship of Christ's sufferings as hearing you talk about that. And I think that's one of the unique things about knowing Jesus is that there's this paradox that we're called to move towards suffering and in moving towards suffering, love for another, we we experience joy and fellowship with God. And uh, I'm struck by this quote. We, we both talked about Les Mis earlier. And one of the big lines in there, Victor Hugo's line, is that to love another person is to see the face of God. So in loving those students, how have you encountered God? Not that I fully understand, but I started understanding grace and what that means on a practical level. Because there are many difficult um, times throughout the day that a student reacts a certain way, is physically aggressive, is verbally aggressive, um, and I get to go process with them, which is a big step in our classroom. Like, it's very important that you process so you get to come back to class. Um, But we talk about what happened, and we try to get down to the bottom of it as much as possible, and then we don't bring it up again. It's... You are loved in this classroom, whether that had happened or not. And just that that's like the way God, it's not like God goes, remember Jesse, remember you did this? Remember a couple of years ago you did this? You know, like he doesn't bring it up again with us. Um, and so with these students is, yes, something will happen. But it's not like the rest of the day I go and I point to, oh, look, you bit me. Remember you did this? Remember, it hurt. You remember that? You remember? And so I get to like, push, you know, process, because that is an important step. You don't want to skip that step. And let them know that, yes, you did hurt me, but we're going to move forward, and you still have goals today, and you still have different classes to do today, and I'm not going to bring it up the next day, and I'm not going to bring it up the day after that, and I am going to just process and move on, and I just didn't really understand that um, about, like, the way God sees me. is like, it's not like he skips the processing part because I made a mistake. I'm going to keep making mistakes. I'm a sinner. Like, sanctification, here we go. So we'll process, but then he moves forward. And it's he doesn't, like, rehash it out with us continuously. And, you know, shame on you for these things you've done. And so that's how I try to work with my students so that they are able to move forward, too. So last question. The work you do is hard, and it's important to establish rhythms of Sabbath and rest. What does that look like for you in your life? I am very much an active rest person, so I get outside and I take hikes. Um, Specifically, I've been working on, now that my foot, you know, is working correctly, um, but just I go on these hikes and I just repeat all these things I'm thankful to God for. Because I can get stuck in that rut of like, this is hard and I'm, I'm mad about this and this didn't go right and whole long list of those types of things. I get outside in his beauty and I get on a trail and the whole way up I'm thankful and the whole way down I'm thankful and it puts everything back in perspective and that that's what I try to do at least once a week um, just to be outside in his beauty um, and then to connect with other people is important, to read, to be separated from work to very much carve out time that I am not writing an IEP or planning lessons or you know thinking about that all the time um, has been really good as well. But definitely that active rest of get out, be in his glory, be thankful because there are so many things to be thankful for and a lot more to be thankful for than to be upset for. And maybe some of those things we're upset for we can even be thankful for. So yeah, just trying to play the thankful game.
So uh, if you had to tell people to go on one or two hikes that would show them the beauty of God, wh what would you recommend? Where would they go in the Phoenix metro area? So there are some hikes I go on that obviously people don't want to go on because I'm like, hey, it's, it's only 10 miles. But going to the superstitions and then getting to the peak on the superstitions, which is a very long hike, but it's so worth it because you turn out and you see see a civilization, you see people's houses, you see the roads, you see the cars, and then you just turn all the way around and you go, our state is how big? It is that, I'm, it's shocking to me every time. I've been up there multiple times. You get up and it's like, this is huge. This is amazing. This is beautiful. This is Arizona? Because we think of desert, cacti, that's it. Um, there's green, there's beauty to it. And that, that I think the size is just always shocking to me. Um, the other place I like to go, which is a little more realistic for everybody's abilities, is Boyce Thomas Arboretum. And that has diversity to it. And um, it also has education to it as well with you're going in and you have names to the things you're seeing. You have locations where it's more appropriate for children and they're, they can be safe and play there. Um, you have shorter walks where like everybody can experience that beauty and that, you know, getting up to your little mountain and looking out. Um, and sometimes there's even water, which is always exciting. Um, and so that would be like the other place to go. And I often bring a book and I find a bench under a tree and I, I read there and I just relax and, and it's somehow like always a little bit cooler there, weirdly enough. So escape the heat. Well, I'm, I'm just struck by the reality that God sees. He sees people that often get overlooked in this world and he sees them through your eyes. And I think that's incredible. And I think it's also something to note that God sees you and he sees the good work you do. And I just get the sense that he is really pleased. So thanks for taking the time and letting us do this interview and letting all of us learn from your journey. Wow. That is one of the most moving interviews that we've had so far. Listening to her share that and you feel that weight, Jim. But if someone were to, let's say the Joker shows up to Phoenix he has kidnapped your family. He will not let them go unless you agree to have your memory zapped of what you just heard. But you get to hold on to one thing. What would that one thing be that you would remember from what Jesse just shared with us? And you took that in both a imaginative and a kind of dark direction there. I got to be honest with you. <laughs> the one thing I would want to remember is what she talked about when she mentioned God is the God who sees. He sees the people that are often overlooked in this world and how she saw herself as an instrument of God and reflecting the way that he sees. God sees the most vulnerable, but he sees them through our eyes. And he sees those students, those students in that special ed classroom that most people would just look past or walk around God sees them, and he sees them with the eyes of Jesse. Honestly, that means a ton to me. My daughter's on the autism spectrum. It worries me about how things are going to go for her in the future. And if we were gone, if something happened to us, would anyone see her? Would anyone care for her? And I think while the Holy Spirit is real and inhabiting people, 
people like Jesse, I do have hope that there will be people who see my daughter. I just love the fact that God has called someone into that work. How about you, man? If your memory was wiped out, what would you want to retain? And I'm not going to put any dark conditions on it. Just, uh, just I want to hear what you would retain. You know, I was really struck by the fact that these students that she sees, they see her too, and they spit on her, and they bite her, and she has scars on her arm, scars of love. It just impresses upon me the fact that loving your neighbor through your work is never easy. You always put yourself at risk to be hurt by people whenever you love them, especially when you're dealing with the vulnerable. You know, when you're trying to, whether it's with the elderly or with the people experiencing homelessness or with people in the, in the prison population, it's not easy trying to help people who have been sinned against and are sinners. And there's always that dual reality that even though people can be sinned against and are vulnerable, they're also at the same time sinners. And sometimes you can get spit on and get your arms bit and get scars. And sometimes that's the price of our calling uh, to love our neighbors. But at the same time, we can experience, as Jesse has expressed, the joy of Christ, even in the midst of that pain. And that really is the idea of cruciformity, that our lives should be shaped around the cross. And I think that that is absolutely true when it comes to our work. That as followers of Christ, there are hard, painful, challenging things that we do, which are a part of the fellowship of, of Christ's sufferings. That we, we enter into that suffering as people who are dramatizing the cross, who are living into the cross. And as we cling to Jesus, he's the one who lifts us up, who brings us the unique and incomprehensible joy of loving well and loving sacrificially. And I think a lot of times when we talk about work, faith and work, and the theology that undergirds that, we emphasize creation and the goodness of work. But I think there also needs to be an emphasis on the cross. So as you all go out into your week, as you engage in your work this week, I would just ask you the question, how is the cross and the call to sacrificially love others shaping you in your work today? And we'll see you next week, next Monday, uh, for another Faith, Work, and Rest podcast. Imagine that Aleppo was vacation cool, and all the prison buildings were vocation schools. Imagine that we sip the finest water that exists, and it ain't from Poland Spring, not it's more like Poland Flint. Imagine politicians with the different views, all coming together every night, the news. Reports on the beauty of creation, not the mess. Get called some higher rest, just to need to higher bless. The pain from autism, all replaced by more wisdom. The lame hit the dance floor, moving on rhythm. And no stores closed, no one cutting more ribbons. And all them strip clubs become museums just for women.